0: We're blessed in so many ways. We have transportation to get here and to get home, and we've got food to eat today. Um, everybody here is, is dressed, and we're thankful for that. We have clothing. We have everything we need. And God, we know that you have given us all of these things because you love us, and that you have asked us to love people the way that you love people. And that would mean that maybe we begin to see things, stuff, blessings that you've given us, and money. Not just as an opportunity to have for ourselves, but to show our love as you have loved us, like Christ did. And to give generously to others, especially those in need, and especially those in need of Jesus Christ. God, would you give this spirit to this church, the spirit of your generous love. Help us to abound in it more and more, to overflow in it. And together we pray this morning, and we thank you because we're grateful for Jesus' love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, and I'll say amen all right we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 6 but before we get there let me remind you of a story that Jesus told this I'll turn this back on this story was probably not a historical story it's a parable and so Jesus is telling a story about a man walking he's going on a hike or something and he's crossing through a field that's not his property and he finds a treasure that is hidden in the field and when he found it, uh, I guess he you know, looks in this box, maybe the lock is broken open, or he you know, jimmies the lock and he finds whatever treasure, the gold, the jewels, whatever was in there, and he, of course, is filled with joy because he's just discovered this great treasure. And so he immediately goes in his joy, he sells everything that he has, he buys his field, this field for himself, and now he has the treasure. And Jesus says, this is like the kingdom of God. So we love this story because we love stories about treasure hunts and about finding treasure. But I had to wonder as I was reading this and thinking about this parable about the person who's not in the story. The person who at one time buried the treasure. And so today we're talking about buried treasure. But there was a person before the person in the parable that had the same stuff. And he had the stuff and he put it in a box because they probably didn't have banks or whatever and he was trying to protect it and he buried it in the field and we don't know what happened to him. And I wonder about what were, what were the situations that led to him not coming back to get his treasure. Did the guy go on a journey and die and everyone forgot about the treasure? I wondered about the circumstances. Why is there a person who owns a field that has a treasure in it and they're unaware of the treasure in it? Of course, Jesus was teaching the Jews here about the treasure they had had with God in their midst, and, you know, he's doing this spiritual application, but it has such mystery in it about the real things that we have, and the things that we bury, the things that we hide, the things that we keep, and the things that we think are for ourselves. Somebody experienced a great loss here. They lost the opportunity to give their treasure away willingly to someone that they loved or knew or cared for. Instead, somebody got the treasure. In time, it was dug up, but the person who lost it lost the opportunity to experience the joy of giving it or doing anything meaningful with it. And I think this is what Jesus is talking about in today's text that we read, Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Jesus will say, "'Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth "'where moths and vermin destroy.'" I just love that version of this verse. It's the only Bible verse I know of that says vermin. A couple of weeks ago, Jenna and I were cleaning out our garage and doing some spring cleaning, as many of you have probably done. Now, hands high and proud if you've already gotten to your spring cleaning this year, at least a little bit. Give yourself credit. If you've gotten anything hands high and proud, good for you, right? Now, you've probably discovered uh, that there has been some decay of some kind. There's dust on the boxes that you clean. You pulled some things out, maybe like myself living in Bella Vista, you discovered you had had some visitors that didn't pay rent over the winter. And so they leave their traces behind. We pulled out some boxes and we found a bunch of recently chewed paper products. You know, you got a little nest back there and other leavings. The vermin come to destroy and to steal and hopefully not to kill, right? They're just like thieves. Mice and rats and thieves have this thing in common. They come into the house. They see your stuff. And they want your stuff for themselves. That's what thieves and vermin have in common. They want to eat it. They want to take it. They want your stuff to be their stuff. And I'm pretty sure in this saying here, Jesus is is hoping that we will understand. Don't be like the thieves and the vermin when you look at your stuff, okay, this is not just a matter of having earthly stuff versus having spiritual stuff. This is a matter of when you look at the things God has given you, do you, like a rat, only think, for me to eat, for me to sleep in, right? This is for me to use. Do you, like a thief, think, it's mine to take. I would like to have that stuff. Or, Is there another option in which you see the things that God has given you? And like a human being who isn't a thief and isn't a vermin, you think of all this possibility and opportunity where this stuff God gave me now has heavenly potential. It has another kind of economy that it can be changed into. He says, "'Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where the moths and the vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also.'" When you see the stuff that you've collected and you're spring cleaning, maybe you ask the question that we've all been taught to ask recently, like, does this give me joy? And then ask yourself. Go one question deeper with Jesus. And what does that tell me about my heart? How much do I need? How much do I want? And what do I want to do with it? I want us to sit on this verse for just a minute longer and do a little bit of thinking and let it sink in, and then we're going to make a a broader appeal to Jesus' teachings to give us a foundation today for a whole series on generosity that we'll do over the next three weeks. So here's one thing I want you to see in the scripture. Jesus says uh, don't store up earthly treasure but heavenly treasure. And I think we've made a mistake sometimes with this verse when we think or when we say that what Jesus means is only delayed gratification. Don't have earthly stuff because someday you want to have permanent heavenly stuff. Uh, don't have fun now someday you'll have fun in heaven so live a strict sober not fun life now uh, right now uh, take on all of the cares of the world so that someday you can live in, with, live in heaven without any cares of the world uh, I think we have this idea that there is in other words a progression where this time that we live in now is called earth and it has its treasures and this time that will come later after the judgment day is called heaven, and it will have its kind of treasures. And that the only goal of Jesus' teaching on generosity is give up all your earthly pleasures so that you can have heavenly pleasures. Okay. Here's the problem with this line of thinking. The scriptures, from the very beginning, talk about heaven and earth not as two consecutive realities, but as one reality coexisting now and being renewed later. So, how did the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created, everybody say it with me, the heavens and the earth. It's a Jewish way of saying all that there is, spiritual and physical realities, were made by God. And the scriptures throughout are very consistent. In the prophets, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament teachings, it's in Peter, it's in John, it's in Jesus, it's in the book of Revelation, it's all throughout that what God is doing at the end of time is restoring all things and making all things new and there's a new heavens and a new earth so what happens after the judgment is not just like there's no more physical blessings and only spiritual blessings but that everything is being renewed in other words God is saying this I can make you I can make you wealthy I can make you blessed I can make you fed. I can make you spiritually fed. I can make you spiritually quenched, your thirst quenched. I can meet your needs. I can do all of the things that the people of God and the church need both now and in eternity. It's not like you just have to give up all of this forever to have this someday. No, it's not like you you give up earth to get heaven. It's that you step into heaven now with whatever he gives you. Wealth, seasons of poverty, seasons of sickness, seasons of health, whatever it is, you can be in heaven now. Treasure in heaven, go ahead. I I don't think this is really working, so go ahead to the next slide. Thanks. Treasure in heaven does not primarily teach this delayed gratification idea, but rather it encourages a preference for higher gratifications. How do I now use the stuff that God's blessed me with to bring about the kingdom of heaven and its treasures in the present? God someday will restore all things and he'll bring the kingdom of heaven then too, but he's promised it now. The question is, how do we make the exchange? How do we go from having only stuff that doesn't bring about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, To having stuff, giving it generously, using it wisely so that it brings about the kind of relationships, peace in the world, prosperity in the world, improvement among human beings. That it brings about the gospel being shared with others. The things that Jesus would call the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to propose today and over the next couple weeks as Todd and I preach through this series that the exchange is made through generosity. Stuff becomes more than stuff when it's married with love. And love gives. Let me say it again. Stuff becomes more than stuff, and money becomes more than money when it's married with love. And love gives, and it gives generously. I'm using the exact same slides this morning for first service and for second service. But every time I give a sermon, even if it's only an hour apart, It's a different sermon. Do you know why? Because there's different people in the room with different opportunities that God has laid in their lives, in their wallets, on their hearts, in their hands. And the way the Spirit chooses to mold those words and those ideas and the scriptures to those people means that there's different responses, which means it's a different sermon. And I don't know where you are today or where somebody from the first service was today When they hear these words and this teaching of Jesus about generosity, but I'm praying that all of those in the Bentonville Church of Christ who for decades have been giving and loving generously can see the fruit that it's brought about. And I'm praying that all of those of us who are younger or newer or haven't been here as long, or who maybe are just beginning to start down the road of living generously, we'll see the potential for what could become if we all give in that way and if we all love in that way. Next slide, please. Jesus is going to show us throughout his teachings that there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual conversion and how we handle our money. Jesus teaches about 15% of his words about money. Why does he spend 15% of his time talking about it? I think it's because he knew that we spend far more than 15% of our time thinking about it and worrying about it. And this is surprising to us, but when we take a survey of Jesus' teachings and the Gospels, we find that what people do with their stuff is always intimately connected to their coming to Jesus moments. Look at John the Baptist as an example. John was preaching repentance for the people of Israel because God's Messiah was coming. And so he took the people of God out to the river Jordan where their forefathers generations ago had crossed through the river into Canaan's land, the song that Todd just led us in. And I I didn't know he was going to lead that today. That was just a cool uh, bonus, right? To Canaan's land, I'm on my way. And the people had crossed into this promised land through the river Jordan. John takes them back out there and is baptizing them in the Jordan River for repentance and the forgiveness of their sins so that they would be thinking about, what does it mean for me to cross into a land of God's blessing? What would it mean to be in the kingdom of God with God's blessing? And they begin to ask John, these different groups, what should we do? He says, bear fruit, keeping with your repentance. And they say, like what? And in verses 11 and 13 and 14, he answers them. And he says to the people, if you have some extra clothes, an extra coat, share it with the people that don't. And to the tax collectors, he said, don't take more money than you're supposed to. And to the soldiers, he said, don't use your power to take people's stuff. All of the teachings, the fruit, are linked to now that you believe in Jesus as, as the coming Messiah or in God's coming Messiah, do something different with what God has given you in the world to bring about a better world. Zacchaeus is another great example, and we know him for all the wrong reasons. How many of you remember the, the song, the VVS Sunday School song about Zacchaeus? What's the big takeaway? You know, he's short. Everybody remembers this guy for all of history because he's short. It's just what a dude wants to be remembered for. You know. <laughs> You remember that short guy that we used to hang out with, you know? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And he went up in the sycamore tree because he wanted to see the Lord. And the Lord comes to his house that day, and when Zacchaeus responds to Jesus, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. And Zacchaeus says, I know, isn't it great? Half of what I own is now the poor's. And anybody that I've robbed from, I'll return it four times. Jesus didn't say that. Zacchaeus said that. He had a heart transformation. In a moment, he experienced the kingdom of God, and he suddenly realized there are greater heavenly joys that I can have right now by trading in some of my stuff to tap into them. There are things that God would unleash if I would give. The Jerusalem converts are another example in Acts 2 and Acts 4 they're all here for the Pentecost festival and when God sends his Holy Spirit down on these early Christians and they have the tongues of fire and they speak in other languages many people hear them and believe and accept Jesus but now they need to be taught about Jesus so for a number of months they're living in Jerusalem in a community hearing the teaching about how he's the Messiah and food starts to run out and people's clothes wear out and there's poor people living in the city and so the church begins to sell their property They begin to sell land and titles and to bring stuff and to give it to the apostles and just generously say, you know, give this to whoever has need. All of these are examples of people who, when they encounter the living Lord Jesus, begin to have a higher standard of giving because of what they've received from him. Next slide, please. According to Jesus, a gauge of my spiritual condition measurement of it is whether I'm rich towards myself or rich towards God. He compares a couple different kinds of people in his teachings to make just this point. The widow is famous because she gives generously with little. Remember, she's the one who puts two little coins, all she had left, into the offering at the temple. And when she does that in Mark twelve forty four, Jesus says, she gave all that she had We hear, wow, give all that you have. I don't know if I can get by that way. I don't know if I'm big enough to do it. I don't know if I have enough to make a difference. Paul was writing to some Christians in the context of giving in his letter. I left the other verses about giving off because it's too much for today, but in the context of giving, he wrote to the church. I think he was thinking about Jesus' widow. If the willingness is there, the heart, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. You see what Paul just did with giving? He didn't make it a rule. He didn't make it a law. He didn't take us backwards into guilt, into shame, into condemnation. He did what Jesus did when Jesus saw the widow and said she loved much. He said, A gift, it's willing, that means it's married with love, makes all the difference. Jesus contrasts the widow with this fella who was already wealthy. I'm pretty sure the widow was a real person, an event. Jesus saw it happen. I think the barn builder might be a parable, not a real event, not a real person, but a paradigm. I think the barn builder is all of us at different times. And this guy has a great crop that comes in. He grows all of this grain, and he's already rich, and he's got barns to store it in. And he says to himself, famously, what should I do with all of this grain that I have? I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger, better ones, and then I'm going to retire. Take it easy. Kick back. And he didn't know in Luke 12, 20, that that night he was going to die, and God was going to ask him about what he had done with all of his opportunities And this guy experienced the loss like the treasure buried in the field. He he never got to give it away. He never got to use it for anything. He lost out on the stuff, and he lost out on the joy of sharing. He had enough. He could have had the whole town over for dinner for a year. See, this guy saw his stuff, and he thought, this means I'm going to have a higher standard of living. the widow thought I'll have a higher standard of giving and this is really just the point this is a key a bottom line takeaway for this series and next week we're going to talk some about how do we multiply joy how do what are some specific ways that we do this and we create joyful interactions and multiply them Todd two weeks from now is going to preach about heaven being our home and eternity being our mindset and living for the line and not just the dot the dot being life the line being forever And the last week, I'm going to talk about some barriers to generosity, things that hold us back. But think about this. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. And I didn't feel compelled to say this in first service, but I feel compelled to say it in this service. This has nothing at all to do with the preacher or the staff getting more. We don't get paid in percentages based on the giving of the church. Okay? The money that comes in at this church goes to the elders who make budgets and plans of how to use it to do good in the world and spread the gospel. There's no direct correlation. I want you to know this is not preaching uh, into my pocket. Because all of us have inside of us, if we let it run astray and control us, this sinful nature and this sinful urge. All of us have this desire to just raise and raise and raise our own opportunities and only live for the things that vermin can destroy. In fact, we become more and more like them. I couldn't help but think as I was putting this message together about this great visual from the movie Charlotte's Web that I used to watch when I was a kid. Anybody ever seen Charlotte's Web, the little pig and the spider, and there's the rat named Templeton. And Templeton finds, oh, the glorious promised land at the end of a night of the carnival. There are scraps and bits and a smorgasbord, and he eats and he eats and he fills himself. He's a gluttonous rat, and then he's rolling on the ground in agony, you know. And we all are Templetons at times. God's not here to shame us. He's here to show us what love can do. And in 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul wrote, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ this is written to Christians like you and like me he said you know the grace you know Jesus came to you and did something there was an exchange an eternal currency exchange that took place he says though he was rich for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich and I want to tell the church this morning you know just one minute to do this and then we'll finish up we have a tendency to spiritualize this verse away so that it doesn't have any, any meaning or any traction anymore. Well, yeah, he was in heaven, he's God, he's all powerful, he makes all things, he can make whatever he needs. It's, you know, it's not the same as us with bills to pay and all of that that he became poor for us, but it is. This cannot just be spiritualized away. This is the power of the incarnation. This is why the gospel of Jesus, how Jesus became king of everything, starts with the virgin birth because he was a human person, and for 30-something years, he lived in nearly abject poverty in the back water areas of Judea, hand-to-mouth living, day-to-day earning, never getting ahead. The women that funded his ministry knew the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He lived in it, but not to shame you, but to connect lovingly with people in a way that can only happen by emptying yourself out and giving. Philippians 2 said he was God, but he didn't consider it worth holding on to. He emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, and this is what Paul is talking about. It's extremely practical, and it's extremely real, and extremely powerful. Because if God would have just stayed God in heaven, powerful and distant and perfect, and not come down to us eye to eye, We wouldn't have ever had the heart connection with him. We wouldn't have known to love him the way we do. We wouldn't have thought of Jesus as our Savior, our friend, the one we love, the one who knows us. And this last verse says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a a ransom for many. This is what Jesus did for me. And when this verse is written in Matthew 20, it uses a transaction language, a financial language, that Jesus ransomed me from my slavery to sin. When I was in sin, I had no choice, I had no power, I had no willpower to decide my destiny. I could only do what my master, sin, told me to do. And so I lived gluttonous and selfish, and everything was for me. But Jesus paid this ransom. He transformed me to be a person who can experience and find all of these gifts of the Spirit. Now, won't we as a church follow him into stepping into it together to see everything that he's given us as an opportunity to create love, to make peace of the world, to do justice, to save lives, both from starvation and from sin, whatever it takes as a recent popular movie said. Whatever it takes. Let's stand together this morning. We're going to sing this song. And we invite you over the next few weeks to be praying with us about how God is taking the stuff that we have and turning it into imperishable, eternal relationships to the glory of Jesus.